Chapter 4 of Isaac Walton's Lives of John Donne, Henry Wotton, Richard Hooker, and George Herbert by Isaac Walton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 George Herbert, Part 3 he instructed them also what benefit they had by the church's appointing the celebration of holy days and the excellent use of them namely that they were set apart for particular commemorations of particular mercies received from almighty god and as rev mr hooker says to be the landmarks to distinguish times for by them we are taught to take notice how time passes by us and that we ought not to let the years pass without a celebration of praise for those mercies which those days give us occasion to remember and therefore they were to note that the year is appointed to begin the twenty-fifth day of march a day in which we commemorate the angels appearing to the blessed virgin with the joyful tidings that she should conceive and bear a son that should be the redeemer of mankind and she did so forty weeks after this joyful salutation namely at our christmas a day in which we commemorate his birth with joy and praise and that eight days after this happy birth we celebrate his circumcision namely in that which we call new year's day and that upon that day which we call twelfth day we commemorate the manifestation of the unsearchable riches of jesus to the gentiles and that that day we also celebrate the memory of his goodness in sending a star to guide the three wise men from the east to bethlehem that they might there worship and present him with their oblations of gold frankincense and myrrh and he mr herbert instructed them that jesus was forty days after his birth presented by his blessed mother in the temple namely on that day which we call the purification of the blessed virgin saint mary and he instructed them that by the lent fast we imitate and commemorate our saviour's humiliation in fasting forty days and that we ought to endeavour to be like him in purity and that on good friday we commemorate and condole his crucifixion and at easter commemorate his glorious resurrection and he taught them that after jesus had manifested himself to his disciples to be that christ that was crucified dead and buried and by his appearing and conversing with his disciples for the space of forty days after his resurrection he then and not till then ascended into heaven in the sight of those disciples namely on that day which we call the ascension or holy thursday and that we then celebrate the performance of the promise which he made to his disciples at or before his ascension namely that though he left them yet he would send them the holy ghost to be their comforter and that he did so on that day which the church calls whit sunday thus the church keeps an historical and circular commemoration of times as they pass by us of such times as ought to incline us to occasional praises for the particular blessings which we do or might receive 
by those holy commemorations. He made them know also why the church hath appointed ember weeks, and to know the reason why the commandments and the epistles and gospels were to be read at the altar or communion table, why the priest was to pray the litany kneeling, and why to pray some collect standing, and he gave them many other observations fit for his plain congregation, but not fit for me now to mention. For I must set limits to my pen, and not make that a treatise which I intended to be a much shorter account than I have made it. But I have done, when I have told the reader, that he was constant in catechizing every Sunday in the afternoon, and that his catechizing was after his second lesson and in the pulpit, and that he never exceeded his half-hour, and was always so happy as to have an obedient and a full congregation. And to this I must add, that if he were at any time too zealous in his sermons, it was in reproving the indecencies of the people's behavior in the time of divine service, and of those ministers that huddled up the church prayers without a visible reverence and affection, namely such as seemed to say the Lord's Prayer or Collect in a breath. But for himself his custom was to stop betwixt every collect and give the people time to consider what they had prayed, and to force their desires affectionately to God before he engaged them into new petitions. And by this account of his diligence to make his parishioners understand what they prayed, and why they praised and adored their Creator, I hope I shall the more easily obtain the reader's belief to the following account of Mr. Herbert's own practice, which was to appear constantly with his wife and three nieces, the daughters of a deceased sister, and his whole family twice every day at the church prayers, in the chapel which does almost join to his parsonage house. And for the time of his appearing, it was strictly at the canonical hours of ten and four, and then and there he lifted up pure and charitable hands to God in the midst of the congregation. And he would joy to have spent that time in that place where the honor of his master Jesus dwelleth, and there, by that inward devotion which he testified constantly by a humble behavior and visible adoration, he, like Joshua, brought not only his own household thus to serve the Lord, but brought most of his parishioners, and many gentlemen in the neighborhood, constantly to make a part of his congregation twice a day. And some of the meaner sort of his parish did so love and reverence Mr. Herbert, that they would let their plough rest when Mr. Herbert's saints' bells rung to prayers, that they might also offer their devotions to God with him, and would then return back to their plough. And his most holy life was such, that it begot such reverence to God and to him, that they thought themselves the happier when they carried Mr. Herbert's blessing back with them to their labor. Thus powerful was his reason and example to persuade others to a practical piety and devotion. 
and his constant public prayers did never make him to neglect his own private devotions, nor those prayers that he thought himself bound to perform with his family, which always were a set form and not long, and he did always conclude them with that collect which the church hath appointed for the day or week. Thus he made every day's sanctity a step towards that kingdom where impurity cannot enter. His chiefest recreation was music, in which heavenly art he was a most excellent master, and did himself compose many divine hymns and anthems, which he set and sung to his lute or viol. And though he was a lover of retiredness, yet his love to music was such that he went usually twice every week on certain appointed days to the cathedral church in Salisbury, and at his return would say that his time spent in prayer and cathedral music elevated his soul and was his heaven upon earth. But before his return thence to Bemerton, he would usually sing and play his part at an appointed private music meeting and to justify this practice he would often say religion does not banish mirth but only moderates and sets rules to it and as his desire to enjoy his heaven upon earth drew him twice every week to salisbury so his walks thither were the occasion of many happy accidents to others of which i will mention some few in one of his walks to salisbury he overtook a gentleman that is still living in that city, and in their walk together Mr. Herbert took a fair occasion to talk with him, and humbly begged to be excused if he asked him some account of his faith, and said, I do this the rather because, though you are not of my parish, yet I receive tithe from you by the hand of your tenant. And, sir, I am the bolder to do it, because I know there to be some sermon-hearers that be like those fishes that always live in salt water, and yet are always fresh. After which expression, Mr. Herbert asked him some needful questions, and having received his answers, gave him such rules for the trial of his sincerity, and for a practical piety, and in so loving and meek a manner, that the gentleman did so fall in love with him and his discourse that he would often contrive to meet him in his walk to salisbury or to attend him back to bemerton and still mentions the name of mr george herbert with veneration and still praiseth god for the occasion of knowing him in another of his salisbury walks he met with a neighbour minister and after some friendly discourse betwixt them and some condolement for the decay of piety, and too general contempt of the clergy, Mr. Herbert took occasion to say, One cure for these distempers would be for the clergy themselves to keep the ember week strictly, and beg of their parishioners to join with them in fasting and prayers for a more religious clergy. And another cure would be for themselves to restore the great and neglected duty of catechizing, on which the salvation of many of the poor and ignorant lay-people does depend, but principally that the clergy themselves would be sure to live unblameably, 
and that the dignified clergy especially, which preach temperance, would avoid surfeiting and take all occasions to express a visible humility and charity in their lives, for this would force a love and an imitation and an unfeigned reverence from all that knew them to be such. And for proof of this we need no other testimony than the life and death of Dr. Lake, late Lord Bishop of Bath and Wells. This, said Mr. Herbert, would be a cure for the wickedness and growing atheism of our age. And, my dear brother, till this be done by us, and done in earnest, let no man expect a reformation of the manners of the laity. For it is not learning, but this, this only, that must do it. And till then, the fault must lie at our own doors. In another walk to Salisbury, he saw a poor man with a poorer horse that was fallen under his load. They were both in distress, and needed present help, which Mr. Herbert, perceiving, put off his canonical coat, and helped the poor man to unload, and after to load his horse. The poor man blessed him for it, and he blessed the poor man, and was so like the good Samaritan that he gave him money to refresh both himself and his horse, and told him that if he loved himself he would be merciful to his beast. Thus he left the poor man, and at his coming to his musical friends at Salisbury, they began to wonder that Mr. George Herbert, who used to be so trim and clean, came into that company so soiled and discomposed. But he told them the occasion, and when one of the company told him he had disparaged himself by so dirty an employment, his answer was that the thought of what he had done would prove music to him at midnight, and that the omission of it would have upbraided and made discord in his conscience whensoever he should pass by that place. For if I be bound to pray for all that be in distress, I am sure that I am bound so far as it is in my power to practice what I pray for. And though I do not wish for the like occasion every day, yet let me tell you, I would not willingly pass one day of my life without comforting a sad soul or showing mercy, and I praise God for this occasion. And now let us tune our instruments. Thus, as our blessed Saviour, after his resurrection, did take occasion to interpret the scriptures to Cleopas and that other disciple which he met with, and accompanied in their journey to Emmaus, so Mr. Herbert, in his path towards heaven, did daily take any fair occasion to instruct the ignorant, or comfort any that were in affliction, and did always confirm his precepts by showing humility and mercy, and ministering grace to the hearers. And he was most happy in his wife's unforced compliance with his acts of charity, whom he made his almoner, and paid constantly into her hand a tenth penny of what money he received for tithe, and gave her power to dispose that to the poor of his parish, and with it a power to dispose a tenth part of the corn that came yearly into his barn, 
which trust she did most faithfully perform, and would often offer to him an account of her stewardship, and as often beg an enlargement of his bounty. For she rejoiced in the employment, and this was usually laid out by her in blankets and shoes for some such poor people as she knew to stand in most need of them. This as to her charity. And for his own he set no limits to it, nor did ever turn his face from any that he saw in want, but would relieve them, especially his poor neighbors, to the meanest of whose houses he would go and inform himself of their wants, and relieve them cheerfully if they were in distress, and would always praise God as much for being willing as for being able to do it. And when he was advised by a friend to be more frugal, because he might have children, his answer was, he would not see the danger of want so far off. But being the scripture does so commend charity, as to tell us that charity is the top of Christian virtues, the covering of sins, the fulfilling of the law, the life of faith, and that charity hath a promise of the blessings of this life, and of a reward in that life which is to come. Being these and more excellent things are in Scripture spoken of thee, O charity, and that being all my tithes and church dues are a deodate from thee, O my God, make me, O my God, so far to trust thy promise as to return them back to thee and by thy grace I will do so in distributing them to any of thy poor members that are in distress, or do but bear the image of Jesus my master. Sir, said he to his friend, my wife hath a competent maintenance secured her after my death, and therefore, as this is my prayer, so this my resolution shall, by God's grace, be unalterable. This may be some account of the excellences of the active part of his life, and thus he continued till a consumption so weakened him as to confine him to his house, or to the chapel, which does almost join to it, in which he continued to read prayers constantly twice every day, though he were very weak, in one of which times of his reading his wife observed him to read in pain and told him so, and that it wasted his spirits, and weakened him. And he confessed it did, but said his life could not be better spent than in the service of his master Jesus, who had done and suffered so much for him. But, said he, I will not be willful, for though my spirit be willing, yet I find my flesh is weak, and therefore Mr. Bostock shall be appointed to read prayers for me to-morrow, and I will now be only a hearer of them, till this mortal shall put on immortality. And Mr. Bostock did the next day undertake and continue this happy employment till Mr. Herbert's death. This Mr. Bostock was a learned and virtuous man, an old friend of Mr. Herbert's, and then his curate to the church of Fulston, which is a mile from Bemerton, 
to which church Bemerton is but a chapel of ease, and this Mr. Bostock did also constantly supply the church service, for Mr. Herbert in that chapel, when the music meeting at Salisbury caused his absence from it. About one month before his death, his friend Mr. Farrar, for an account of whom I am by promise indebted to the reader, and intend to make him sudden payment, hearing of Mr. Herbert's sickness, sent Mr. Edmund Duncan, who is now rector of Friar Barnet in the county of Middlesex, from his house of Gidden Hall, which is near to Huntington, to see Mr. Herbert, and to assure him he wanted not his daily prayers for his recovery, and Mr. Duncan was to return back to Gidden with an account of Mr. Herbert's condition. Mr. Duncan found him weak, and at that time lying on his bed, or on a pallet. But at his seeing Mr. Duncan, he raised himself vigorously, saluted him, and with some earnestness inquired the health of his brother Farrar, of which Mr. Duncan satisfied him. And after some discourse of Mr. Farrar's holy life, and the manner of his constant serving God, he said to Mr. Duncan, Sir, I see by your habit that you are a priest, and I desire you to pray with me. Which being granted, Mr. Duncan asked him, What prayers? To which Mr. Herbert's answer was, Oh, sir, the prayers of my mother, the Church of England. No other prayers are equal to them. But at this time I beg of you to pray only the litany, for I am weak and faint and Mr. Duncan did so. After which, and some other discourse of Mr. Farrar, Mrs. Herbert provided Mr. Duncan a plain supper and a clean lodging, and he betook himself to rest. This Mr. Duncan tells me, and tells me that at his first view of Mr. Herbert he saw majesty and humility so reconciled in his looks and behavior as begot in him an awful reverence for his person, and says, His discourse was so pious, and his motion so genteel and meek, that after almost forty years yet they remain still fresh in his memory. The next morning Mr. Duncan left him, and betook himself to a journey to Bath, but with a promise to return back to him within five days, and he did so but before I shall say anything of what discourse then fell betwixt them two, I will pay my promised account of Mr. Farrar. Mr. Nicholas Farrar, who got the reputation of being called St. Nicholas at the age of six years, was born in London, and doubtless had good education in his youth, but certainly was at an early age made fellow of Clare Hall in Cambridge, where he continued to be eminent for his piety, temperance, and learning. About the twenty-sixth year of his age he betook himself to travel, in which he added to his Latin and Greek a perfect knowledge of all the languages spoken in the western parts of our Christian world, and understood well the principles of their religion, and of their manner, and the reasons of their worship. In this his travel he met with many persuasions to come into a communion with that church which calls itself Catholic, 
but he returned from his travels as he went, eminent for his obedience to his mother, the Church of England. In his absence from England, Mr. Farrar's father, who was a merchant, allowed him a liberal maintenance, and, not long after his return into England, Mr. Farrar had, by the death of his father, or an elder brother, or both, an estate left him that enabled him to purchase land to the value of four or five hundred pounds a year, the greatest part of which land was at Little Gidden, four or six miles from Huntington, and about eighteen from Cambridge, which place he chose for the privacy of it, and for the hall which had the parish church or chapel belonging and adjoining near to it. For Mr. Farrar, having seen the manners and vanities of the world, and found them to be, as Mr. Herbert says, a nothing between two dishes, did so contemn it that he resolved to spend the remainder of his life in mortifications, and in devotion and charity, and to be always prepared for death, and his life was spent thus. He and his family, which were like a little college, and about thirty in number, did most of them keep Lent and all Ember Week strictly, both in fasting and using all those mortifications and prayers that the Church hath appointed to be then used. And he and they did the like constantly on Fridays and on the vigils or eves appointed to be fasted before the saints' days and this frugality and abstinence turned to the relief of the poor. But this was but a part of his charity. None but God and he knew the rest. This family, which I have said to be in number about thirty, were a part of them his kindred, and the rest chosen to be of a temper fit to be moulded into a devout life and all of them were for their dispositions serviceable and quiet and humble and free from scandal. Having thus fitted himself for his family, he did, about the year 1630, betake himself to a constant and methodical service of God, and it was in this manner he, being accompanied with most of his family, did himself used to read the common prayers, for he was a deacon, every day at the appointed hours of ten and four in the parish church, which was very near his house, and which he had both repaired and adorned. For it was fallen into a great ruin, by reason of a depopulation of the village, before Mr. Farrar bought the manor. And he did also constantly read the matins every morning at the hour of six, either in the church or in an oratory which was within his own house. And many of the family did there continue with him after the prayers were ended, and there they spent some hours in singing hymns or anthems, sometimes in the church, and often to an organ in the oratory. And there they sometimes betook themselves to meditate, or to pray privately, or to read a part of the New Testament to themselves, or to continue their praying or reading the psalms. And in case the psalms were not always read in the day, then Mr. Farrar and others of the congregation did at night, at the ring of a watch-bell, 
repair to the church or oratory, and there betake themselves to prayers and lauding God, and reading the psalms that had not been read in the day. And when these or any part of the congregation grew weary or faint, the watch-bell was rung, sometimes before and sometimes after midnight, and then another part of the family rose and maintained the watch, sometimes by praying or singing lauds to God or reading the psalms. And when, after some hours, they also grew weary and faint, then they rung the watch-bell and were also relieved by some of the former or by a new part of the society which continued their devotions, as hath been mentioned, until morning. And it is to be noted that in this continued serving of God the Psalter or whole book of Psalms was in every four and twenty hours sung or read over from the first to the last verse, and this was done as constantly as the sun runs his circle every day about the world, and then begins again the same instant that it ended. Thus did Mr. Farrar and his happy family serve God day and night. Thus did they always behave themselves as in his presence. And they did always eat and drink by the strictest rules of temperance, eat and drink so as to be ready to rise at midnight or at the call of a watch-bell and perform their devotions to God. And it is fit to tell the reader that many of the clergy that were more inclined to practical piety and devotion than to doubtful and needless disputations, did often come to Giddon Hall and make themselves a part of that happy society, and stay a week or more, and then join with Mr. Farrar and the family in these devotions, and assist and ease him or them in the watch by night and these various devotions had never less than two of the domestic family in the night, and the watch was always kept in the church or oratory, unless in extreme cold winter nights, and then it was maintained in a parlour which had a fire in it, and the parlour was fitted for that purpose. And this course of piety and great liberality to his poor neighbours, Mr. Farrar maintained till his death, which was in the year 1639. Mr. Farrar's and Mr. Herbert's devout lives were both so noted that the general report of their sanctity gave them occasion to renew that slight acquaintance which was begun at their being contemporaries in Cambridge and this new holy friendship was long maintained without any interview but only by loving and endearing letters and one testimony of their friendship and pious designs may appear by mr farrar's commending the considerations of john valdeso a book which he had met with in his travels and translated out of spanish into english to be examined and censored by Mr. Herbert before it was made public, which excellent book Mr. Herbert did read, and returned back with many marginal notes, as they be now printed with it, and with them Mr. Herbert's affectionate letter to Mr. Farrar. 
This John Valdeso was a Spaniard, and was, for his learning and virtue, much valued and loved by the great Emperor Charles V, whom Valdeso had followed as a cavalier all the time of his long and dangerous wars. And when Valdeso grew old, and grew weary both of war and the world, he took his fair opportunity to declare to the Emperor that his resolution was to decline his majesty's service and betake himself to a quiet and contemplative life because there ought to be a vacancy of time betwixt fighting and dying the emperor had himself for the same or other like reasons put on the same resolution but god and himself did till then only know them and he did therefore desire Valdeso to consider well of what he had said, and to keep his purpose within his own breast, till they too might have a second opportunity of a friendly discourse, which Valdeso promised to do. In the meantime the emperor appoints privately a day for him and Valdeso to meet again, and after a pious and free discourse they both agreed on a certain day to receive the blessed sacrament publicly and appointed an eloquent and devout friar to preach a sermon of contempt of the world and of the happiness and benefit of a contemplative life which the friar did most affectionately after which sermon the emperor took occasion to declare openly that the preacher had begotten him a resolution to lay down his dignities and to forsake the world and betake himself to a monastic life and he pretended he had persuaded john valdeso to do the like but this is most certain that after the emperor had called his son philip out of england and resigned to him all his kingdoms that then the emperor and john valdeso did perform their resolutions this account of john valdeso i received from a friend that had it from the mouth of mr ferrar and the reader may note that in this retirement john valdeso wrote his hundred and ten considerations and many other treatises of worth which want a second mr ferrar to procure and translate them after this account of Mr. Farrar and John Valdeso, I proceed to my account of Mr. Herbert and Mr. Duncan, who, according to his promise, returned from the bath the fifth day, and then found Mr. Herbert much weaker than he left him, and therefore their discourse could not be long. But at Mr. Duncan's parting with him, Mr. Herbert spoke to this purpose sir i pray give my brother farrar an account of the de decaying condition of my body and tell him i beg him to continue his daily prayers for me and let him know that i have considered that god only is what he would be and that i am by his grace become now so like him as to be pleased with what pleaseth him and tell him that I do not repine, but am pleased with my want of health, and tell him my heart is fixed on that place where true joy is only to be found, and that I long to be there, and do wait for my appointed change with hope and patience. Having said this, 
he did, with so sweet a humility as seemed to exalt him, bow down to Mr. Duncan, and with a thoughtful and contented look say to him, Sir, I pray deliver this little book to my dear brother Farrar, and tell him he shall find in it a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus my Master, in whose service I have now found perfect freedom. Desire him to read it, and then, if he can think it may turn to the advantage of any dejected poor soul, let it be made public. If not, let him burn it. For I and it are less than the least of God's mercies." Thus meanly did this humble man think of this excellent book, which now bears the name of The Temple, or Sacred Poems and Private Ejaculations, of which Mr. Farrar would say, there was in it the picture of a divine soul in every page, and that the whole book was such a harmony of holy passions as would enrich the world with pleasure and piety and it appears to have done so, for there have been more than twenty thousand of them sold since the first impression. And this ought to be noted, that when Mr. Farrar sent this book to Cambridge to be licensed for the press, the vice-chancellor would by no means allow the two so much noted verses, Religion stands a tiptoe in our land, ready to pass to the American strand, to be printed, and Mr. Farrar would by no means allow the book to be printed and want them. But after some time, and some arguments for and against their being made public, the Vice-Chancellor said, I knew Mr. Herbert well, and know that he had many heavenly speculations, and was a divine poet. But I hope the world will not take him to be an inspired prophet, and therefore I license the whole book so that it came to be printed without the diminution or addition of a syllable, since it was delivered into the hands of Mr. Duncan, save only that Mr. Farrar had added that excellent preface that is printed before it. At the time of Mr. Duncan's leaving Mr. Herbert, which was about three weeks before his death, his old and dear friend Mr. Woodnett came from London to Bemerton, and never left him till he had seen him draw his last breath, and closed his eyes on his deathbed. In this time of his decay he was often visited and prayed for by all the clergy that lived near to him, especially by his friends the bishop and prebendaries of the cathedral church in Salisbury, but by none more devoutly than his wife, his three nieces, then a part of his family, and Mr. Woodnut, who were the sad witnesses of his daily decay, to whom he would often speak to this purpose. I now look back upon the pleasures of my life past, and see the content I have taken in beauty, in wit, and music, and pleasant conversation, are now all passed by me like a dream, or as a shadow that returns not and are now all become dead to me, or I to them. 
and I see that as my father and generation hath done before me, so I also shall now suddenly with Job make my bed also in the dark, and I praise God I am prepared for it, and I praise him that I am not to learn patience now I stand in such need of it, and that I have practised mortification, and endeavoured to die daily, that I might not die eternally. And my hope is that I shall shortly leave this valley of tears, and be free from all fevers and pain, and which will be a more happy condition, I shall be free from sin, and all the temptations and anxieties that attend it. And this being past, I shall dwell in the new Jerusalem, dwell there with men made perfect, dwell where these eyes shall see my Master and Saviour Jesus, and with him see my dear mother, and all my relations and friends. But I must die, or not come to that happy place, and this is my content, that I am going daily towards it, and that every day which I have lived hath taken a part of my appointed time from me, and that I shall live the less time for having lived this and the day past. These and the like expressions, which he uttered often, may be said to be his enjoyment of heaven before he enjoyed it. The Sunday before his death he rose suddenly from his bed or couch, called for one of his instruments, took it into his hand, and said, My God, my God! My music shall find thee, and every string shall have his attribute to sing. And having tuned it, he played and sung, The Sundays of man's life, threaded together on time's string, make bracelets to adorn the wife of the eternal glorious King. On Sundays heaven's door stands ope, blessings are plentiful and rife, more plentiful than hope. Thus he sung on earth such hymns and anthems as the angels and he and Mr. Farrar now sing in heaven. Thus he continued meditating and praying and rejoicing till the day of his death, and on that day said to Mr. Woodnut, My dear friend, I am sorry I have nothing to present to my merciful God but sin and misery but the first is pardoned, and a few hours will now put a period to the latter, for I shall suddenly go hence, and be no more seen. Upon which expression Mr. Woodnut took occasion to remember him of the re-edifying Leighton Church, and his many acts of mercy, to which he made answer, saying, They be good works, if they be sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and not otherwise. After this discourse he became more restless, and his soul seemed to be weary of her earthly tabernacle, and this uneasiness became so visible that his wife, his three nieces, and Mr. Woodnut stood constantly about his bed, beholding him with sorrow and an unwillingness to lose the sight of him whom they could not hope to see much longer. As they stood thus beholding him, his wife observed him to breathe faintly and with much trouble, and observed him to fall into a sudden agony, which so surprised her that she fell into a sudden passion and required of him to know how he did. 
to which his answer was that he had passed a conflict with his last enemy and had overcome him by the merits of his master jesus after which answer he looked up and saw his wife and nieces weeping to an extremity and charged them if they loved him to withdraw into the next room and there pray every one alone for him for nothing but their lamentations could make his death uncomfortable to which request their sighs and tears would not suffer them to make any reply but they yielded him a sad obedience leaving only with him mr woodnut and mr bostock immediately after they had left him he said to mr bostock pray sir open that door then look into that cabinet in which you may easily find my last will and give it into my hand which being done mr herbert delivered it into the hand of mr woodnut and said my old friend i here deliver you my last will in which you will find that i have made you my sole executor for the good of my wife and nieces and i desire you to show kindness to them as they shall need it i do not desire you to be just for i know you will be so for your own sake but i charge you by the religion of our friendship to be careful of them and having obtained mr woodnut's promise to be so he said i am now ready to die after which words he said lord forsake me not now my strength faileth me but grant me mercy for the merits of my jesus and now lord lord now receive my soul and with these words he breathed forth his divine soul without any apparent disturbance mr woodnut and mr bostock attending his last breath and closing his eyes thus he lived and thus he died like a saint unspotted of the world full of alms deeds full of humility and all the examples of a virtuous life which i cannot conclude better than with this borrowed observation all must to their cold graves but the religious actions of the just smell sweet in death and blossom in the dust mr george herbert's have done so to this and will doubtless do so to succeeding generations i have but this to say more of him that if andrew melvin died before him then george herbert died without an enemy i wish if god shall be so pleased that i may be so happy as to die like him isaac walton there is a debt justly due to the memory of mr herbert's virtuous wife a part of which i will endeavour to pay by a very short account of the remainder of her life which shall follow she continued his disconsolate widow about six years bemoaning herself and complaining that she had lost the delight of her eyes but more that she had lost the spiritual guide for her poor soul and would often say oh that i had like holy mary the mother of jesus treasured up all his sayings in my heart but since i have not been able to do that i will labour to live like him 
that where he now is i may also be and she would often say as the prophet david for his son absalom oh that i had died for him thus she continued mourning till time and conversation had so moderated her sorrows that she became the happy wife of sir robert cook of hinnom in the county of gloucester knight and though he put a high value on the excellent accomplishments of her mind and body and was so like mr herbert as not to govern like a master but as an affectionate husband yet she would even to him often take occasion to mention the name of mr george herbert and say that name must live in her memory till she put off mortality by sir robert she had only one child a daughter whose parts and plentiful estate make her happy in this world and her well using of them gives a fair testimony that she will be so in that which is to come mrs herbert was the wife of sir robert eight years and lived his widow about fifteen all which time she took a pleasure in mentioning and commending the excellences of mr george herbert she died in the year sixteen sixty three and lies buried at hinnom mr herbert in his own church under the altar and covered with a gravestone without any inscription this lady cook had preserved many of mr herbert's private writings which she intended to make public but they and hinnom house were burnt together by the late rebels and so lost to posterity i w end of chapter four part three end of isaac walton's lives of john dunn henry wotton richard hooker and george herbert by isaac walton